So in the 1990s, there was a lot written and said about the worship wars. Uh, so like, what, what kind of style was acceptable? Does God like hymns more? Or, to, or is he more of a fan of newer worship songs? And uh, in, the, you know, in that time, in the 1990s, there was a lot of uncharitable things said by you know, the hymn lovers and then the worship lovers. And, uh, and, and often a, a large recipient of the criticism of these worship wars during this time was rock music, particularly hard rock music. Now this morning... Uh, I want to prove to you that, uh, particularly if you're not a fan of hard rock worship, that hard rock worship can be traced to Jesus himself. Okay? That's my, my case. What, you know, the origins and the sound of hard rock worship. So let's turn to Luke 19, uh, verse 37, to find out exactly what that looks like. <coughs> Luke 19, verse 37. Now, we are still going through our 70-day Bible reading challenge. This may be the last sermon in Luke, but I've been reading another passage in Luke over the past little week. So next week, I'm either going to preach on Jude, or I'm going to preach one more sermon on Luke. I still need to wait and see where the Lord leads with that. Luke 19, verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Right? Incredible. Joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. That's not hard rock worship yet. Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they were saying. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out or the rocks will cry out. This is the origin of hard rock worship. There it is in the Bible. <laughs> I can't. It's so fastened onto my head. I can't even drop the mic. Next week we'll be looking at the oranges of folk music. No. <laughs> so, so this, so, so this passage in Luke 19 is is showing Jesus approaching Jerusalem. Right? He's been heading towards there. Uh, he's just brought salvation to Zacchaeus's house. He's turned an outsider into an insider, which is what I talked about last week. And then Jesus's death is kind of just around the corner. And as Jesus rides toward Jerusalem on a colt that his disciples found for him, the crowds are spreading their cloaks uh, so that he can ride over them. Now, if you've grown up in church or Sunday school, hands up if you've heard the story of the donkey and the cloaks and, you know, some palm branches are probably thrown in there as well. And, you know, the word Hosanna, right? Um, So many of us know that story, but what may be less known to us is that this image, that of riding on a donkey over a roadway of cloaks, that's actually a powerful symbol of royalty. Now, the significance of the cult, you know, the donkey, not the gun, is mentioned in Zechariah 9 verse 9, where it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout 
daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the king and the colt is there in the same verse. And then these strewn cloaks on the floor are mentioned in 2 Kings 9 verse 13 in the coronation of this guy called um, called, called. Jehu, and this is what 2 Kings 9.13 says, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel, then it says, then, then they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him there on the bare steps, then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So the cult and the cloaks signify royalty. Now you also have this whole crowd of disciples who are joyfully praising God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Have you got a picture in your mind what that looks like? It's kind of like a Mardi Gras procession. And the words that they are shouting in verse 38 are a quotation from Psalm 118 where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, but this crowd in Luke chapter 19, verse 36, uh, verse 38, adds in an extra word that's not there in the original. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So if you add up all of these things, you have Jesus riding on a donkey like a king. You have people throwing down their coats in front of him like they think he's a king. And they have people shouting out that they believe he is the king. Well, this is starting to look like a royal procession, which is fine if this is going on in a little village somewhere out in the countryside, but it's not. All of this takes place heading into Jerusalem under the eyes of the Roman conquerors. And so it's no surprise that the religious leaders or the Pharisees hiss at Jesus in verse 39, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know, sh you have to shut them up. This is really embarrassing. What what this would be like is if we hired a super fancy limousine and we sat Nathan, our youth pastor, in it and we drive slowly towards downtown Ottawa, towards Parliament Hill and as this limousine is driving slowly along, all of us are kind of around, you know, outside of it, walking along at the same speed and we're shouting this, God wants Nathan Ghost to be Prime Minister. God wants Nathan Ghost to be Prime Minister. Now, how far do you think we could get before drawing the attention of the authorities? And then we're either shut down or we're thrown into jail. Plus, we are claiming God's blessing and authority on this. So if there are any sensible Christ followers there who aren't part of our group, they would be saying to us, shut up, because what you're saying is embarrassing and you're making us look like fools through through extension, or at worst, this is very, very dangerous. And so this kind of lets us have a little bit of insight into the minds of the Pharisees at that moment. Only it's even worse, of course, right? Because at that time, unlike this nation, that nation was... Um, had the Roman invaders, right? And so, and, and so if there was any claim to kingship, it's not just a challenge to Herod, but it's a challenge to the Roman emperor himself. And if Rome feels threatened, then things could go south very fast for the Jews. And so this kind of helps us understand um, 
you know, the panic in the voices of the Pharisees. And then underlying, you know, the fear and the panic is also this, you know, the jealousy um, that this guy, Jesus, who they've been trying to kill and to silence now clearly has the popular vote of the people. Hence their response, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what was Jesus' response? He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is threatening them with hard rock worship. You see, that the, these, these religious leaders and the Pharisees were so convinced that Jesus was a charlatan, a fake, a false messiah, that the one thing that they couldn't even fit into their brains was that he was who he said he was, the king. But here Jesus clearly shows that he believes he is the king who comes in the name and the blessing of the Lord. Because not only does he not silence those you know, who he's kind of responsible for, but he also believes that his, his claim to this title of king is so absolute, so watertight, so without any shadow of, 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 of doubt, that, that Jesus says that if human voices are forced to silence this truth, then nature itself will start vocalizing. What he's saying is that the truth must be spoken out. And if zippers are placed on the lips of the people who can choose to, to, to say this truth, then the truth will squeeze out from nature's most inanimate and boring and unfeeling object, the common rock. Friends, God will be praised. God will be praised. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will we'll bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Romans 14, verse 11. So, all throughout the scripture, right, the Bible has been clear that nature is engaged in this ongoing act of praise of God. Uh, like here, in Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands right verse 2 day after day they pour forth speech night after night they reveal knowledge verse 3 they have no speech they use no words no sound is heard from them yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the earth and so nature glorifies God unintentionally and naturally. So a tree grows and glorifies God. A squirrel hides nuts and glorifies God. Uh, there's this whale who can dive to three kilometers down and stay there for over two hours. And while that whale's doing that, it's glorifying God. You know, there's a bird known as a peregrine falcon, which, which can dive at a speed of up to 320 kilometers an hour. And while it's doing that, it's glorifying God. There's this bird known as a godwit, which, can, which flew 11,900 kilometers nonstop in nine days from Alaska to New Zealand without taking a break for food or drink. Okay. And while it was doing that, it was glorifying God. These 
these mountains known as the Himalayas, they're growing by 2.5 inches every year, and they're glorifying God. But human beings are the only creatures, you know, we are unique because we are the only ones who can perform an act of premeditated worship. We're the only ones because humans are made in God's image, unlike sloths, unlike phytoplankton, unlike blind mole rats, and unlike the albatross. And it's, it's our act of worshiping God that kind of brings out God's image in us, God's likeness in us. And so when we harden our hearts and refuse to worship him, we are rejecting God's image in us. We are, we are not being true to our deepest selves, but nature just, just watching nature, and I've just listed a few things there, but nature constantly draws us back to worship God by revealing him and showing us what he's like. So the night sky reveals, right, the majesty and the mystery of him. When I, when, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Psalm 8 verse 3. And so nature worships God by, by, by showing us a little bit of what he's like and how creative he is. But nature also praises God by proving that God exists. This is known as the teleological argument. Now, what teleological means is final causes, right? So the, so the ultimate reason is the teleological cause. So here's an example. You are the teleological argument that your biological parents exist, Okay, you are the proof that two people with your DNA markers at one point had sex. So your existence is absolute, categorical, teleological evidence that your biological parents exist. And nature is the teleological argument that a creator or a designer exists. So rocks indeed do cry out. And we see this all throughout the Bible. But it's also interesting that science also backs this up. And so here, here I have a quotation. And as I'm showing this quotation, I want to be showing you this short video. Um, and what it shows you is a cell. Okay? This is a, a video which Shannon sent me. It's excellent. So I feel, you know, Sh Shannon with all her scientific expertise and knowledge, if she sends it to me, I can show it to you. Okay? And uh, as you're watching this, I will be reading a quotation from Josh McDowell. Okay, let's mute. Perfect. All right, so let's briefly look at a cell magnified one billion times. On its surface, we find millions of openings like portholes in a ship. But these are not mere portholes. They regulate the flow of materials in and out of cells. Of, of this cell. Now, cells exhibit nano-engineering on a scale and sophistication that scientists have hardly begun to scratch. So scientists think of the cell as an automated city. Inside this cell, we find a host of raw materials maneuvering back and forth by robot-like machines, all working in unison. In fact, many different objects move in perfect unison through seemingly end 
through seemingly endless conduits. Now, the level of control in these choreographed movements is truly mind-blowing, and this is just one cell. In larger organisms, cells must work together for the proper function of organs, such as hearts, eyes, liver, livers, and ears, and these, in turn, must work together for the life of the, of the whole, whole organism. Now, if we peer further into the cell, we find coils of, 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 of DNA. Let's watch that, watch that video again. If we peer further inside the cell, we find coils of DNA that store the information necessary to construct, uh, construct proteins. Now, proteins themselves are remarkably complex molecular systems. A, a, a regular protein is composed of a few hundred few hundred amino acids arranged in a precisely ordered sequence that then folds into a highly organized 3D structure. This structure then enables the, the, the protein to perform its function inside the cell. Now, biologists these days cannot even explain these, these activities inside the cell without comparing it to machines and other feats of modern engineering. Now, now the reason is that nearly every feature of our own advanced technology can be found in the cell. And as we carefully observe the inner workings of the cell, one thing becomes, becomes clear. There is complexity and sophistication that dwarfs human technological innovation nowadays, which is why more and more scientists are concluding that the best explanation for, this, for the cell is some sort of a creator, some sort of intelligent design. End of quote. Okay? Lots there. Were you able to see that thing that looked like it was walking? Isn't that incredible? That exists. That's a thing. I don't know what it is, but I looked on the YouTube comments, and it's a thing. There's this thing inside that cell that's walking on these little feet. It's incredible. And, and this just reinforces what David already knew in Psalm 139, where he says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And so 3,000 years ago, we see David knowing that creation worships God by doing what it's supposed to be doing, by revealing his character and by pointing to his existence. So that's how nature cries out. But there's another way that nature cries out, not just in praise, but in pain as well. Let's turn to Romans 8, verse 20. Nature cries out in pain says this, creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present moment. Right up until now. So in this passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul is painting this, this picture of a groaning world, of a frustrated world, of a world that's in pain, a world that's in labor. And we see it in earthquakes. We see it in famines. We see it in COVID-19. We see it in, in, um, in, in 
lots of things around. This is a world that is unsettled, that is groaning, that knows that things aren't right. And how I know this is because when do you groan, okay? You groan when you have a stomach ache, right? It's so, you know, you know that something's inside you that's not supposed to be and that there's this kind of alien, uh, you know, that's there inside you and you either expel it this way or you expel it the other way, right? And so you groan because something has to be made right. And so sin is the thing which has infected our world. And, and, and it's not just our humans, but nature itself. And so nature groans wanting to expel this sin. And what nature also does is it's, it's not only groaning, but it's actually, it's, there is a witness and nature looks at us, and nature goes, this is your fault. Nature accuses us. And so when Jesus, in Luke chapter 19, says that the rocks will cry out, he also means that the rocks are going to cry out as a protest, because they know that they are in the presence of the king, and if these willfully blind Pharisees succeed in silencing those who, who, would, who, who would praise this rightful king, then the rocks will get angry at the injustice of it all. They will cry out. And so the rocks kind of serve as a witness, like in a legal court, just like, uh, just like Abel's blood. You know, there in the book of Genesis... It, 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 uh, it called out as a witness against his, against his brother Cain in Genesis 4, verse 10. So for most of my life, I've read Luke 19, verse 14, and I've thought that it meant, if my disciples cannot praise Jesus, then the rocks will praise him. Hands up if you've had that understanding of Luke 19, verse 40. Right? It's all about praise. It's all about worship. And I think linked with that is because as, as I've seen Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, I've always pictured Jesus with, with, a, with a smile on his face. Like he's there and he's receiving all of the praise that's rightfully his. And so he's encouraged and he's happy. Maybe he's even raising his hands like a politician, but he's riding on a donkey, so he's probably also holding on. You know? but, but, but that's kind of what I see. But now I'm not sure if I see a smile on his face or not. I'm not sure whether I see Jesus lapping up the praise, soaking it in like a sponge. Uh, I think now I see, uh, you know, something else on his face. I see maybe a tear rolling down his, 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 his face. I, I, I see him just holding in, hardly holding in all of the emotion that he's feeling and why I think this is because in the very next verse, in verse 41, we read this. As, as Jesus approached the, the city and saw it, it says he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but I, sh- but I don't believe that Jesus could go from being insanely happy in one verse to weeping in the next verse unless Jesus was suffering from some kind of a mental illness. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't suffering from a mental illness, and so I think that we need to look at the triumphal entry with new eyes and see this kind of shadow which has been cast over it. We need to reread this passage with a 
with a little bit of a minor key melody there in the background because there's a link between these rocks, between this image of a rock crying out in protest and Jesus weeping over the city. There's a link between this rock crying out in protest and Jesus weeping over the city because what nature knows and what heaven knows is that in this city are people who have rejected the peace that only Jesus is able to bring. These are the people who will turn on him very soon and say, you should crucify him. You see, uh, and what's happening in this moment is really ironic because um, in that very moment that these stones, that these rocks have taken on human characteristics of speech, of worship, and of righteous anger, it's in this moment that the people have taken on the characteristics of the stone. And it's known as hardness of heart. And we see that, you know, we see that Pharaoh had it, and we see that the Pharisees had it, and we see that these people in Jerusalem have it too. And so, so Jesus sees these calloused hearts who feel justified in rejecting him and, the, and, the, and his claim on their life. And so as Jesus looks upon this city that should be the center of worship for him at this place where the temple is, where the Holy of Holies is, at this place where God's presence dwells, right? So God's presence dwells in the Holy of Holies and God is riding towards Jerusalem on a donkey as he sees this as he sees these hard hearts where the widow who gives everything she's rubbished and ignored where where worship has turned into a marketplace where the teachers of the law walk around in their long robes um, saying you have to respect me where where he sees this city where the outsiders aren't welcomed as, as insiders, where they can never experience God's grace. Jesus sees these people uh, who have exchanged their hearts of flesh for hearts of stone, and his heart weeps because they don't remember what it's like to worship in the presence of mighty God, and they don't know what it is to, to have his yoke, which is easy, and they're walking around in their self-righteousness, and his heart breaks and he knows as well that in one week, he will die at their hands. And so for many of the people there in that city, Jesus knows that they've missed their opportunity, that they've hardened their hearts to such a point that asking them to praise him would be like trying to get blood out of a stone. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave you? When you think of Jesus... Do you praise God joyfully in a loud voice for all that he did in your life? Are you calling out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Or are you silent and unmoved? Are you hard? Have you allowed pride and sin to move into your life and your heart? And so as Jesus comes towards you, what does he look like? Is he weeping over you? Do you hear Jesus say as he walks towards you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you, you peace? Now, if you are hearing Jesus say this, it's a sign of life, right? Because it means that your heart is stirring it. It's, it means that you have a conflict going on to either walk forward in faith or to retreat in silence. That's a sign of Jesus' grace. It's a sign of life. It, it means that God is not finished with you yet. There is hope Jesus can change you. 
Friends, when Jesus rose again and he rolled away that stone and he proved that he's the king of kings, he proved that death could not hold him down. He proved that your sin and your pride and your resistance to him does not have to have the last word. And so Jesus wants to roll away that stone from your life. He wants to breathe life into you. He wants to restore and renew you. And so as I wrap up, I want you to listen to these words from Ezekiel chapter 36 as God speaks to a nation in exile. These, these are people who are far from him and God speaks, spoke these words into their life and he longs to speak these words into your life too. Exodus 36. For I will take you out of the nations. These are the words of God. I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be cleansed from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Yeah, you heard that, right? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We see here a greater miracle than making a stone cry out. And that's making a heart of stone cry out. You know, God could create a little mouth on a little rock and cause sound you know, to come out of that little rock mouth. He could do that. Of course he can. He created everything out of nothing. He can do anything. But the greatest miracle is to make a heart of stone realize that it is a heart of stone. And for this heart of stone to cry out, to be transformed into a heart of flesh. To bring life where there was not life to make a living being out of nothing. And that's what this passage points us to in the book of Ezekiel. Because just like the Israelites in Ezekiel, God wants to bring you back from exile. He wants to sprinkle you with water in baptism and in spiritual cleansing. He's willing to grant you a new heart and a new spirit. So are you someone that's longing for this new heart? You know, you know, is there this sense that things aren't right in your life? Are you longing for a heart that longs to do what it was made for? One that, that has its very instincts transformed? Well, God is willing to, 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 to move your heart of stone and to grant you this heart of flesh. He, he, he wants to place you on the operating table of his grace and to give you a heart transplant and a mind transplant and a will transplant. And once that heart, mind, and will transplant has happened, you can say that you are new, that you are transformed. And then just like in verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, God puts his spirit 
inside you. He breathes into you and your lungs inflate and your eyes open. And from that moment on, life is never the same again. Jesus, the king, wants to make disciples out of Pharisees. He wants to create a people who who joyfully praise God in a loud voice for all of the miracles that they have seen. And the greatest miracle of all, greater than casting out demons, greater than turning water into wine, greater than making a feast out of five loaves and two fish, greater than stilling a storm, the greatest miracle of all is when a heart of stone begins to beat for the first time, when a heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, when a heart of stone opens his mouth and starts to praise God for who he is. And that heart of stone says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest.